Welcome to another episode of East Coast, a true crime podcast, where I tell you about the unsolved cases from Florida to Maine and throw in a few solved cases in between. I'm your host, Allie. Today, I'm going to be covering a case that is a little bit different. You'll see what I mean a little bit later on in this episode. We're traveling down to Fayetteville, North Carolina, not too far from Fort Bragg. A fun fact I found while researching this case is that Babe Ruth actually hit his first home run as a pro in Fayetteville, earning the nickname Babe. And while I might be one of the only people who thinks this is really cool, I felt the need to tell you guys. In this episode, we're going back in time yet again to December of 1985, when Lionel Richie, Simple Minds, John Mellencamp, and Eddie Murphy we're on top of the music charts. I really wish I could throw in some 80s music into this episode because it's my one of my absolute favorite decades of music, but I don't really have the money to pay for the licensing fees that would come with all the songs I would want to play. Think along the lines of Take On Me, Hungry Like the Wolf, and Video Kill the Radio Star, among many others. Anyway, before I go off on a tangent about how excellent the 80s were musically. Let's get started with the story. It was Thursday, December 26th, 1985, just a day before Christmas. Jenny Edwards and family friend Kevin Gordon were headed over to Jenny's daughter's house. The 28-year-old Debbie Wolf hadn't shown up for her job that morning at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Fayetteville, where she worked as a nurse. Her mother was understandably worried. According to Jenny, missing work was really out of character for the nurse. On an episode of Unsolved, Jenny said, quote, the next morning, Debbie should have been at work. She had to be at work at eight. Debbie did not go to work. Debbie did not answer her telephone. It wasn't like Debbie at all. She never missed work, end quote. This prompted Jenny to head over to her daughter's house with Kevin. Debbie lived about four miles outside outside of Fayetteville and about a hundred yards from the main road. The small cabin was surrounded by large trees and was relatively remote. There was even a small pond out back. When Jenny and Kevin arrived at Debbie's home, something immediately felt wrong, especially to Jenny. Debbie's car wasn't parked in its usual spot. Beer cans were scattered about all over the floor. Debbie's two dogs had not been fed, and her nurse's uniform was discarded in the kitchen. Debbie's purse was found by Kevin, shoved under the bed. It felt wrong. Debbie was nowhere to be found. There was a message on Debbie's answering machine from earlier that day. It was a man from the hospital calling to see how Debbie was doing, and that she hadn't been at work for a few days. A few days when Debbie had only been been missing, as far as anyone knew, for a few hours. Jenny said that the man was wrong and that Debbie had been at work the previous day. Jenny had talked to her. According to a report in the Charlotte Observer, Debbie had called her mother to tell her that she was on her way home from work that day. But whether or not she actually arrived home isn't really clear. Jenny and Kevin continued their search for Debbie outside, even searching near the pond out back, but Debbie was nowhere to be found. Jenny called the sheriff's office to file a police report, 
but was told that they couldn't start looking for her for three days. This isn't totally correct information. While, yes, the police can tell you to wait to file a police report after 24 to 72 hours have passed if they deem that there isn't a cause for concern, there is technically no minimum or maximum amount of time that has to pass before a police report can be filed. If someone you know goes missing, report it to the police right away. In this case, the family had to wait three days before the police would apparently investigate. But heartbreakingly enough, it wasn't until five days had passed that the police actually would begin their investigation. And the investigation didn't exactly go as well as the family would have liked. While the police did bring in bloodhounds to search the area, they didn't find anything. The dogs walked the perimeter of the pond, but no dive team was brought in. The pond wasn't searched at all. Captain Jack Watts of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department said in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, quote, I think it was mentioned that they had already looked in the pond. There was no use for us to look in the pond, so I don't think we did a dive of the pond or a complete search of the pond on that day. No, we did not. End quote. But Jenny and Kevin hadn't done a complete search. They weren't exactly trained police officers. They had simply swept the grounds looking for Debbie, hoping to find her or see some sign of her. But they hadn't found anything. Jenny wasn't happy with the Cumberland County Sheriff's investigation. She wanted to find her daughter. And so, she hired a dive team. Okay, so it wasn't a dive team in the traditional sense, but it was the best she could do at that point. On January 1st, 1986, in the freezing cold, Kevin Gordon, yes, the same Kevin Gordon who had helped Jenny search the house previously, and his friend, Gordon Childress, according to multiple reports, both were relatively experienced with rescue work. Gordon Childress was actually an army paratrooper and a sergeant in the army. They both set to work. Childress went in the water, swimming slowly around the pond. Fairly quickly, though, Childress said he saw two sets of foot impressions in the thick mud of the pond. There were also what looked to be drag marks nearby. Childress swam through the murky pond for just two minutes when he came across a body. The body was found just 30 feet from the edge of the pond and about five and a half feet of water. The police were dispatched to the scene, and soon, the body would be identified as Debbie Wolf. And on that note, we'll be back after a short ad from our sponsor. And welcome back from that very short little break. I previously mentioned that they found Debbie's body in the pond behind her house, and that it was found by Gordon Childress. What I didn't mention was that, according to Childress, he found the body in a burn barrel. He didn't touch the body or the barrel and called for the police. But that's when things get a little bit weird. Debbie's mother, Jenny, in the Unsolved Mysteries episode said, quote, I asked one of our friends who was there, I said, what happened? Do they have the barrel? And they said, no, they decided to leave it there. They'll get it in the morning. The next day, they went back to get the barrel, and they said that the barrel was gone. All of a sudden, 
It didn't exist. The same barrel that had been there the night before. End quote. So, according to Jenny, over the course of the investigation, the police began to refute that there was even a barrel there at all. Captain Jack Watts even says in that same episode, quote, In my opinion, and the opinions of some of the investigators, what appeared to be a barrel to some of the divers could have been Debbie's jacket, which may have ballooned out as she was laying at that angle in the bottom of the pond. End quote. The man who found the body, Childress, doubles down on the barrel being there. We'll talk a little bit more about the barrel in a bit. Debbie's autopsy revealed that there was no trace of drugs, no alcohol in her system, and no signs of foul play. However, according to Dr. Maurice Godwin, a professor, consultant, and writer, the manner of death was reported as undetermined. Dr. Godwin did a really excellent write-up on this case where I got a lot of my information from. According to his website, he's investigating the case. On Dr. Godwin's website, he writes, quote, The medical examiner could not determine if the drowning was an accident or homicide. Often, in suspicious deaths, investigators look to other factors to help them conclude if a death was an accident or murder. Clues found both in the cabin, outside, and on Debbie's body should have suggested to investigators that they were dealing with a murder. Findings from the autopsy should have also raised red flags about Debbie's death. First, she had multiple abrasions on several of her fingers. These could have been defensive wounds. It is reasonable to conclude that in a typical drowning situation, the deceased eyes and mouth would have been open along with their hands and arms in a clawed position as though they were fighting for their life. However, Debbie's eyes and mouth were closed and her body appeared as though she was in a relaxed state. Also, in a typical drowning case, the deceased would have a white froth or foam-like substance in their airways and or excluding from their mouth or nostrils. No froth or foam substance was found on or in Miss Wolf's mouth or airway. The presence of either foam, froth, or foam is a vital phenomenon and often indicates that the victim was alive at the time of submersion. Was Debbie unconscious prior to entering the pond? The autopsy found only a half teaspoon of water in Wolf's umper bronchial area. End quote. But investigators disagree with the idea she was murdered. Captain Jack Watts in the Unsolved Mysteries episode, actually puts forth the idea that she could have been playing with her dogs and fell in. Apparently, the dogs were running around the property when the family members got there. But family and friends disagree with the claim that it could have been an accident. I'm going to discuss some of the um, inconsistencies in the investigation that a lot of people look to to say that it might have been murder. And this is where it is a kind of different type of unsolved case because investigators do claim that it was an accidental death while others her family in particular argue that it was murder the first is the whole drum thing investigators completely discount the idea of a drum being in the water but Childress is steadfast in the idea that the drum existed 
saying, quote, There is no doubt in my mind. I'm 100% positive that it was an old burn barrel or something of that nature. You know, metal, rusted, 55-gallon type drum that the body was in, end quote. There was actually a barrel on the property similar to the type of barrel that he described. That same barrel was MIA after Debbie's death. There was even an indent in the ground where it should have been, but the barrel itself wasn't there. And then there's the whole message on the answering machine. Jenny believes it might have been a volunteer from where Debbie worked. Apparently, there were a few men there who were interested in Debbie, but she wasn't interested in them. She had a boyfriend at the time. Investigators say they interviewed everyone that the family requested, but basically, they got nothing. According to Jenny, the volunteer who was interviewed left the area soon after Debbie's death. The other inconsistency that in this case is a bit of an odd one. According to Jenny, the clothes she got back from the police weren't Debbie's. The brown corduroy pants were too big and too long. The bra was a size 38C, while Debbie wore a size 34B. The shoes that were returned were also too big, and they were men's shoes. Apparently, they found photographs with Debbie in the shoes, so that cleared that instance up. And I've also bought shoes that are technically labeled as men's shoes, but I like them. So there is that possibility that she bought men's shoes because she liked them but the size doesn't add up. But the one thing that doesn't change is they were clean, spotless clean. They were white Nikes and they were clean. The NC State Bureau of Investigation ascertains that they did not clean them. That's how they got them. I've had white sneakers and let me tell you, walking in mud like the police hypothesize that she did before she died, that would make white sneakers a hot mess. Debbie was also found wearing a black Pittsburgh Steelers shirt and a new regulation army field jacket that did not belong to her or anyone else associated with her. So basically, this case adds up to a whole lot of confusion. Was Debbie murdered? Well, I can't say for certain. I'm beginning to think she was. If she'd fallen in the water, would her dogs have not tried to pull her out? Would there not have been evidence in the area around the pond? Well, I don't know what types of dogs she had. I can only imagine that there would have been some evidence of the dogs freaking out or something similar to that. And what about the barrel? That's the thing I keep coming back to with this case. Was there actually a barrel there? And if it was, where did it disappear to? Did someone go back to it? Did they leave a potential crime scene not blocked off to the public? Like, there are so many questions here. And there are so many things to consider in this case. And it's kind of crazy. But for now... I guess this case really just remains a mystery. Many people believe that the death of Debbie Wolf was an accident. Specifically, 
that's what police believe. But family and friends firmly believe that she was murdered, that it wasn't an accident. And that's where this case stands right now. Jenny passed away in 2002. This case was deemed an accident in 1986. This case is essentially closed. But just as a case is closed doesn't mean that all the questions have been answered. And that's kind of where the story ends. I do want to make a quick few announcements before I go. As I say every week, I do the research for these cases all on my own. I tell this podcast based on newspaper articles I've read, interviews I've watched, online resources I find, or documentaries, if there happen to be. Which, in this case, there was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. So, that being said, I might get things wrong. I will try my best to tell the most truthful, accurate story about what happened to these victims, but I may make mistakes. If you happen to know otherwise about a case, or you're related to one of the victims and want to have their story further expanded, please reach out to me. All of the sources that I use for the story are in the show notes, and the theme song is The Journey Acoustic by Jowl2020 on Audio Jungle. Thank you so much for all of you who have been listening the past few weeks. It means so, 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 so much, and like you guys can't imagine how happy it makes me. If you're new, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a five-star review. If you have a case you want me to cover or just want to say hi, you can email me at eastcoasttruecrime at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram at eastcoasttruecrime, which I'm eventually going to get up and running as a functional Instagram, but for now, I'll randomly post. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening and listen again next week as we venture a little bit further north into Delaware. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm.